Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Catherine Brodsky, who is a writer and a journalist and the author of No Apologies, which is her exploration of the boundaries around free speech. In this conversation, we talk about her political leanings and how tough it is to be a centrist nowadays with so many people being pulled and pulling each other to the extremes of any given political perspective or spectrum. You can find Catherine's book in the links below and also her Twitter where she's busy writing and talking up a storm about the prescient issues of the day. Without further ado, here is Catherine Brodsky. There is kind of a um, skeptical atheist to anti-woke pipeline that's been a uh, well-traveled last few years. Yeah. Yeah, people either ended up becoming like more skeptical or not more skeptical. People either ended up, well, kind of in a way, they became skeptical of, of the woke side of things, or they became uh, more entrenched in the woke ideology. So it's kind of, it's, it's from what I understand in that community, it's sort of divided now. Yeah. What you were never, that was, you never identified as a skeptical atheist. I never. Well, I'm a skeptic about everything, I think. So <laughs> I'm a skeptic about okay. uh, everything in life, but I wouldn't have said that I identify as a skeptic in, in terms of like being part of any kind of skeptic movement. Yeah. I'm also not, because I think the skeptic movement is more anti-religion. And I would say, uh, you know, they're they're more of an atheist movement, right? Whereas I'm more of a, um, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm an agnostic, but I also support other people's right to their beliefs more, like in terms mm -hmm. of religion. So I don't really have, uh, you know, I, I want to support people in thinking what they want to think rather than, you know, criticizing them for it. Okay. As long as they're not using the religion to do harmful things. Like dig tunnels? Like dig tunnels. <laughs> well, I mean, depends on where the tunnels go. I don't know which tunnel. I mean, there's so many tunnels in the news today that I don't even know which tunnels to start with. Really? Yeah. What's going on with all these tunnels in the world? All these tunnels in the world. Well, are people are trying to get away or trying to escape or trying to import things? Like what, what is it about tunnels that is so alluring in 2024? Yeah. Well, one of the tunnels is, um, so one of the tunnels I think has more to do with, um, with trying to get places. Um, if you're talking about the tr tunnel in Brooklyn, I think that had more to do with like getting to a place you're not supposed to. Um, the tunnels in um, Gaza have to do with also getting to places you're not supposed to, because some of them were dug to get into Israel, but also hiding tunnels to keep people safe who are causing bad things in the world. <laughs> hmm. Are there ever any like righteous tunnels as far as you are concerned? Tunnels. <laughs> um, sure. If there was a tunnel that was dug to keep people safe, I think that's a righteous tunnel. Okay. Yeah. I would support Safety. that tunnel. Okay. Do you have any tunnels? Uh, I can't tell you. Okay. Yeah. That was a bad question. 
Let yeah. me just strike that off the record. Not asking that. Yeah. Or, 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 or there. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. No tunnels. But or, when, or maybe there's. Have you been in tunnels and are they good for writing books? Like, is it, does it facilitate your writing craft to be in a tunnel? I've, I've been in safes. I've been in a safe for writing. Uh, like purpose. not a safe room, but like, like a place where no, it's there's like locked bosses. It's physically. So I used to work at this ad agency and they had this room that was like a safe with a huge thing that locks from the outside, which I was a bit paranoid about. I'll be honest, because imagine being stuck there. So I couldn't really write there for too long, but I, I had spent time in that in that safe. There was a bunker also in the same ad agency where we'd have our like creative meetings. And then... Yeah. Were you guys related? I guess this is another question I can't ask. Were you guys related to a three-letter agency or something? Is this what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, you can't ask me that. Okay, but I can't even thinks, ask that. But, you know, it's weird. Like, lately, everyone thinks I'm part of some three-letter agency. It's like, I get accused of, like, I've been accused of spying for, like, three different three-letter agencies by now. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, are you, you're an asset or a, what, what, no, what's the other thing? No, they literally think I'm employed by them. Okay. Those were the accusations. Yeah. How Not can you exactly. ever, you could never possibly disprove that. Exa well, exactly. That's the perfect, have you stopped beating your wife kind of question. Yeah. But there's a lot of questions like that, aren't there? Because a lot of times people will make an accusation and they're like, yeah, prove me wrong. And I'm like, how? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, any evidence I present to certain people um, really doesn't do much in terms of dispelling any, any kinds of narratives. So, um, so I mm -hmm. think they don't, are not so interested in knowing the truth of things. Narratives are a sticky thing. They are sticky. And then they stick. And once, once somebody sticks one to you, it, it really sticks, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you have like a favorite narrative that, that you enshroud yourself with or that you promote? Like you, you try to I mean, obviously, or like fulfill? <laughs> I mean, there is a narrative that I've been promoting, which is, you know, speaking, having more tolerance, ha speaking to people who disagree with you more. So that's uh, definitely a narrative that I've been promoting. I mean, I wrote a book uh, called No Apologies that's really about that narrative about how you know, how important it is to use your own voice and how dangerous it is to have people silence you in a society and the harm that it does, whether it's in academia, art, science, and just generally your friendships are, are dishonest if you are not able to speak the truth of what you believe. So that's been my narrative. I also have been promoting this narrative of it's good. It's really important for us to hear things that we might disagree with when they come in good faith, because, you know, then it challenges your own ideas and um, either you improve, you understand better why you believe what you believe and have stronger, um, stronger arguments for it. Or you might change your mind a little bit because maybe you're not exactly as right as you thought you were. Yeah. You've been doing a lot of Twitter spaces or X spaces. I don't like the yeah, word X. If, if, if Elon hears you say Twitter, you know, he takes five karma points out of your oh, account. Oh, karma. Oh, really? Yeah. From my account. I don't know yeah. where that karma that is. I wonder how I many I know. That's because you haven't yeah. collected any karma yet. No, I still haven't even gotten to that level of Twittering yet. Hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the higher higher uh, Twitter level. That's correct. That's <laughs> <laughs> Is this a pay to win kind of thing, or you just have yeah, to work really hard? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. What what have your spaces been about? And spaces are just uh, kind of audio chat rooms that yes. uh, are hosted on on that platform. I've been doing. Uh, you know, I used to do a lot more, um, especially in the clubhouse days. I don't know if you're familiar with that app. It's yeah, I remember also- that. Yeah, it was a good audio app. That's where I kind of learned how to talk to people, but um, or practice hmm. rather. I don't know if I've learned. Like, uh, you mean, do you mean just to speak your mind to people, to listen and speak your mind, or to facilitate conversations? All of the above, because I also start. Yeah. I did a lot of, um, you know, I don't know what they were called. They weren't called spaces, but whatever rooms, they were called, rooms. Whatever, I was doing yeah. a lot of rooms and different topics, and I bring okay. guests, special guests in, and I talked a lot about journalism and the state of journalism and things like that and freedom yeah. of speech. So it is where I sort of honed my chops, I guess. And then um, Twitter spaces, I do talk a lot. I mean, it was a good way to meet people that I probably would never have been in the same orbit with. Hmm. But um, in terms of my own spaces, like I find them so time consuming. So I, yes. people want me to do more spaces, <laughs> but I don't do as many as I, I wish I could. But I've been doing them on different topics. Like I think there was one recently that was about Kevin Spacey, but it was more about the idea of like, because he was acquitted of his um, um, accusations. So there was like uh, three trials, one in New York that he won, one in, um, I forgot, um, Connecticut, I think. And that one, he, uh, the the person who filed the complaint had mysterious, suddenly um, decided not to speak. So they dropped the charges. And then uh, not to testify against him. And then the third trial, which was in London, he had ended up winning, not with a full consensus, though. Anyways, what was interesting to me in that case is that how do we deal with somebody who is, um, you know, found innocent in the court of law, but in the public court of opinion, he's still comes across quite guilty. A lot of people still believe he's guilty and treat him as such. So how do we as a society deal with that when on the one hand, we should have, you know, he went through due process and he won. So should have been acquitted um, in, in all courts. But at the same time, we also know that there's many reasons why people win sometimes on technicalities or lose sometimes on technicalities um, sometimes because uh Sometimes it doesn't go to court because there's just not the right kind of evidence or too much time has passed and the statute of limitation has passed. So there's many reasons as to why um, sometimes the courts fail. But at the same time, so do we hold, you know, we have a very high burden of proof to convict someone in, you know, legal court, as we Mm -hmm. should, but in the court of public opinion, should we have the same burden of proof? So I thought it was an interesting topic and it was a, quite an interesting discussion. But well, it's also, what, some, yeah. But oh, I was going to say it's a, something, <laughs> something that was uh, in my book too, because I've had changed my views on some of the stuff myself um, because of the person that I interviewed who um, was specifically 
um, someone who uh, was convicted in the court of opinion because of he was named his name is Stephen Elliott and he was named as uh, on this list that went around called the shitty shitty media man list are you are you familiar with that uh, this is from a few years ago was this yeah, the one that was released as a Google Doc yes and it was like yeah, a few Samantha years ago B. during the Me Too movement yeah yeah the height of that Me Too thing yeah. Yeah. So I remember, uh, had I not heard his, him tell his own story originally, I don't know if I would have had the same point of view on him, but hearing it, I, it really made me think about, you know, how we treat people, especially in his case, it was, uh, an anonymous accusation. So it's sort of the fundamental idea of guilty until, um, uh, not guilty. Like, do we get the guilty people? and let some innocent people go, or, or sorry, and get some innocent people in the process? Or do we let some guilty people go so that we can prevent the innocent from going under? So I think that's a very fundamental question. And it's, um, yeah, I, I think seeing what has sort of happened to him and understanding that anonymous accusation shifted my view more towards the, you know, it's sometimes better to let some guilty people go, but protect the innocent. Well, what is the uh, worth of public opinion? Like, what's its value? And what's its power? And what power should it have? And yeah, who, gets to, who gets to decide this thing called public opinion? When I was embroiled in a controversy about a stupid blue dress that a man wore at a conference and a bunch of uh, people had a very strong opinion that he shouldn't have done that because apparently it's fetish gear in their eyes and they weren't even there. They had no interaction with them, but they wanted to exert their power on a conference that they had no relation to. And they were very strongly opinion about that, opinionated about that. So, and when I engaged with them to ask, well, to what degree do we want to start to police dress? And uh, how are we going to codify that? How are you going to enforce that? One thing that became apparent in arguing with the people who were um, in charge or designated themselves as those who were in charge of public opinion was that they constantly spoke as though they spoke for everyone. They would speak for women specifically when they weren't voted on by women. They were speaking for themselves and some other women and some other men, but they would appeal to this, I, I, this authority that they had. And, um, you know, there's an appeal to an authority, right? Which is a fallacy, but it's an appeal to an anonymous authority. Like, like they claim, and this is what happens over and over again in every single, I think across the board in any given, uh, democratic politic, um, or especially in activist circles where, the activists claim to represent this group of people that are then, you know, they're kind of bundled up into like this group of people are defined by the opinion that the activist has. And you see that with the discourse around uh, what Hannah Jones, Hannah B. Jones, uh, the woman who was in charge of the 1619 project, she eventually explained that there's the political black. You could be black, you can be racially black. But that doesn't mean you're politically black. There's this political blackness, which is what uh, is mean. And, and leftists are always kind of swapping out or activists are always kind of swapping out language like that, you know, so the Mott and Bailey kind of thing. So I'm just I'm asking who tells who to take whatever this public opinion thing is seriously. Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms that? of seriously, 
I think the public does what the public does. I think it operates often like a mob where it's sort of there's an infection of uh, infectious idea that sneaks through the mob. So whatever, you know, a few people with loud voices happen to say uh, in a way that's somewhat effective because people hear it then people start sort of leaning in those directions a lot of the times. And that becomes, I think, like a consensus culture aspect to it. But what role does it have? I mean, I think it has a massive role because for various reasons, I think one, we're very tribal animals. So I think people care, probably losing their tribe is one of the most important things for a lot of people or having a tribe and Mm. having the tribe not judge them, not attack them. I mean, people are afraid of things like public speaking for a reason, right? Because they don't want to be judged. They don't want to be shamed, Uh, uh, putting yourself out there. So it's very important to people. And then when you have a professional role, the public can decide to take away things from you. You know, they can demand your head on a silver platter and you lose your job. But in in a case of somebody like, say, Kevin Spacey, you know, he, whether if the public embraces him, then he gets to be, you know, a movie star. And if the public hates him and shames him and believes that he is guilty, even though he was uh, technically acquitted, then yeah. he doesn't have the opportunity to be a movie star. And it was hmm. interesting um, because the last time I saw him was on Tucker Carlson's, you know, whatever X show. And he was, uh, somewhat in character in it. And the comments, you know, obviously most of the people who watch Tucker are going to be conservatives who seem to have been against cancel culture, but they, the comments were in their head. You could tell they thought he was absolutely guilty and we're actually quite upset with um tucker for having him on his show and i thought that was interesting Hmm. um and again and that's what made me think about it it's like okay on the one hand you've got a guy who is he's he's gone through three trials right so and even in my head, I'm going to admit, I mean, there was an a, an assumption of guilt. I don't think he's probably not the nicest person to be around, but but you can't just convict people based on thinking that maybe they're a little inappropriate. You know, do you mm. take people's careers away? Or predatory. Predatory, right. But there's criminal predatory in there is like, oh, I feel kind of icky around this guy, mm. which, look, I... I if I if somebody gave me the what is it the hibbies hibbies jeebies as they say, yeah. would I want to hire that person to be around others? No, I probably wouldn't want that. But this level of punishment, where someone has been accused of a you know, terrible crime and then really had an opportunity to go through the court system. And um, despite that, again, the public still thinks he's not worthy of any kind of grace or any kind of return. So I don't know. To me, it's an interesting dynamic to look at. Well, I mean, yeah, but we we all know that the court system isn't strictly fair. I mean, O.J. Simpson, and there's a number of different very high-profile cases where there's a lot of guilt there, but there's no technical way to prove it or the way that the technicalities fall out. Well, and that's why I said, like, sometimes people get away with things specifically on technicalities, right? Yeah. 
yeah. doesn't and we can kind of tell that they're guilty <laughs> but um and yet well here here's 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 kind of one of the issues for me uh we have to exert pressure on our elite um and everybody has the opportunity and the responsibility and the so-called right to voice their opinion to put pressure on everybody else in order to conform to some norm and who sets that norm how rigid or how loose that norm is is one of the things that i'm interested in and i can see that if we want to get slime balls uh, or less slime bally activity in our elite system which would be media journalism politics business then the court of public opinion is one way to exert pressure on the on those systems and stuff like that and Kevin Spacey is playing a very deft game there. If anybody has watched that clip, it's like a five or seven minute little joke interview uh, where they go through it and it unravels within itself. It's very postmodern. It's very self-referential about it being self-referential and he's deconstructing it. The character that Kevin Spacey is playing is that Frank Underwood from that uh, show, that Netflix House of Cards, who is an evil person. He is an evil person and it's ironic or it's actually poking fun at the audience that this evil, per we delight in watching evil or it's very popular at, and, and it has been for a while since I think the, Soprano, the Sopranos are one really big push towards the anti-hero. It's very popular to be sympathetic to the psychopath and frank was being a psychopath and to what degree is kevin a psychopath and to what degree do we delight in kevin being a psychopath or allow him to be a psychopath because he does it so deliciously for our own benefit and and he kind of brings poetry to that thing so that there's this erosion of that fourth wall but also it's asking us or the it, it the, the question is being opened up to what degree do we want to aspire to virtue and to what degree do we want to hold people to a virtuous standard and again how do we do that how rigid how loose that is that is that is the that is the discourse but the problem with the mob mentality as you uh, brought up or indicated is that it's not really reasoned. It's the opposite of reasoned. It's it's reactioned. And yeah. so it can't be sustained and it can't be codified and it can't be trusted because it will go wherever the emotions lead it. So it's the loss of reason. And, and it's very interesting because um, a lot of people that I talked to when I was researching the book and, and just in general were would say that it is that a lot of times when people participated in mobs, they didn't actually remember that after. So there's this feeling that swoops in. And it's very interesting to me that that could happen in, in something that's a social media, you know, mob, as opposed to a physical mob. It can kind of, in a way I can understand it better as a physical mob, because you, you've seen how to what extent they become irrational and how to what extent they sort of become wild and um and and lose all reason but but you would think that in a social media landscape the same thing wouldn't necessarily be true because why should it be so emotional why why should be you be so overtaken right it's not mm -hmm. visceral but yet it seems to act the same way and it was it was a bit surprising to learn that um, a lot of times people just really didn't remember being part of it, didn't mm. remember it at all. I mean, they could be lying, but 
it just happens yeah. so consistently that maybe they're not. Well, it's it's a loss of conscience and consciousness. I, I think they're probably tied together. When I was, or you know, building the Evergreen documentary and going through hours and hours of footage of this protest, transcribing it all, going over and over and figuring out how to cut it and figuring out how to make it make sense to an audience as a narrative. Uh, I just I watch and expose over and over again these these human beings acting like raving lunatics and being, you know, going from being dangerous to cringy and just out of their minds and not treating other people as human beings. Everybody's kind of lost from this, you know, person to person connection. So it makes sense on one level that if that part of your brain takes over, the other part of your brain's not functioning anymore. The part of your brain that probably builds your ego, sustains your ego, or thinks of yourself as a good person would probably nope out during those moments, you know, because you, you're not, you're not treating anybody like a human being. And so you kind of lose that part of you that that's in uh, command of that. So whether or not there's some sort of psychological defense mechanism around forgetting you acting like that, or if acting like that just kind of erases that other thing, that's a interesting question. That is an interesting question. I'm not sure, but the dehumanization aspect that you hit on, yeah. that is something you that... Just, they dehumanize themselves. We dehumanize ourselves in the process of dehumanizing somebody else. It happens over and over again. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that is the case. Because to dehumanize someone else, you, I guess you would have to dehumanize yourself because you're no longer uh, you know, aspiring to values, which is sort of ironic because you're dehumanizing others because, I mean, in the minds of a lot of people, the reason that they are dehumanizing and justified in dehumanizing other people is because they view them as, you know, doing such offensive things that it's... They're a um, threat to humanity. They're a threat to humanity, exactly. And yeah. it's interesting how little one must do to be considered a threat to humanity. Oh, have you uh, been accused of any uh, crimes against humanity of late? I mean, um, I don't know if I've been, um, I'm sure I have. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, apparently I've been called, I've, people have said that in comments that you're not supposed to read, that I'm um, the, the reason everything is wrong with America, um, even though I'm Canadian. Uh, yeah, you, I was going to say. You're, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. You're well, because the reason... they reject. Yeah, okay. Well, because to me, they saw me as just a reflection of an ideology they don't like. So in this case, I was on Tim Pool's show and it was mm. more of a debate format. So I think some of his viewers have very strong points of views of how they see people on the left. And since I was representing that side, they uh, some of them were very... Uh, vocal in their disapproval. I mean, they have said things like, you know, I have eyes like a dead doll and I'm everything that's wrong with, um, with the, um, I do have dark eyes though. I mean, I have poor lighting for my eyes. So I guess I understand that. And the lighting there was really not good. So yeah, he's got a very stark, uh, set. It's not yeah. inviting. I don't know. No, why. and all the lights come in from the top, which is a horrible way to light people. So it's just, yeah. hmm. it's, 
not good lighting and it does make you <laughs> it did make it did make me look a little more demon like I'll, I'll be honest so. <laughs> wait so how were you representing this uh this group of uh political um ideology ideologues called the left well like how in what way were you representing this left thing well because uh, because it's more of a debate show in that case the debate was about you know i I, I guess I picked the topic and it was about oh. um, the rise of the right wing woke. Right. Um, OK. I, I was really talking about how the the woke on the left is not so dissimilar to what is now the woke on the right because they were using similar tactics. So that was like the original debate. I mean, we went into other things, too. But mm-hmm. um, but because of it positioned as sort of. Yeah. Um, a debate between you know sides i think immediately people it's like a sports team and they really hate you if you're on the other sports team i i there's uh i haven't really had a chance to engage with that um way of framing things but i have a problem with it when people say the right wing woke are just as bad as the left wing woke but we 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 have to completely re- reconfigure the definition of woke, which is already a lost word. It's just kind of means. No, and uh, I'm basing the woke yeah, right? on on the that definition that people now use, kind of more of a slur rather than the original definition okay. of woke. Yeah. But when I talk about it, I um, it's not that I'm saying they're identical. Uh, yeah. or, or sorry, rather just as bad, but I think they could be just as bad. It's just a, a distribution of power issue um, because I think the we see more of the sort of the the left woke. I mean, I don't even use these terms anymore, but um, mm. but this but the distribution of power is higher on the left. So there is more control of institutions and things like that. So, of course, there's going to be a larger impact coming from that. But what do you mean by woke? Are you, are you meaning it in, in this framework that we're talking about now? Are you meaning like some sort of moral authoritarianism? Is that what, is some push towards conformity? Yeah, okay. the moral authoritarianism, right. uh, being able to use certain kinds of tactics, um, like canceling people, for example, and, um, and also this kind hmm. of vision of self as a victim. So the victimhood, I think that comes in for both sides. Um, Mm. So those are the things that I've observed because I've really spent a lot of time with, you know, both on the left and the right. So um, and 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 of course, I'm generalizing because there's such a a variety of people, both on the left and the right and, and different beliefs. And some people don't engage in that kind of behavior at all on either side. But. Mm what I was seeing, what I'm seeing. um, So my kind of theory is that part of why the left has become more authoritarian and, you know, this is a cycle, but part of it is that there is, there was this kind of sense of victimhood and, and it wasn't an entirely untrue, um, you know, it's based in something, right. There was discrimination. So if you look at people, for example, uh, minorities, you know, there was discrimination. So they, align more with the left because at the time the left was you know more fighting for their rights and um but there is this kind of tendency to see one as victim and when a victim becomes somebody with power if there isn't very strong principles then there is this temptation to use that power now 
to suppress other people, especially people that they might see as sort of an enemy in some way or mm. um, against them. And what I'm seeing sort of on the right right now is that, you know, there is a level of victimization that happened, right? Because, you know, people who, for example, when it comes to cancel culture, there has been more, while there have been apparently similar numbers of attempts on both sides, the side that was more effective has been the left. So there was a suppression of speech on on the right. People on the right are more afraid of expressing their viewpoints, are afraid of losing their jobs, things like that and feel like they don't have power against all these really powerful institutions, whether that's media or cultural institutions like productions or just, you know, academia, all of that. Mm -hmm. And so now they're starting to gain a little bit of momentum. So they're starting to get a little bit of power and that power is now combined with a really strong resentment and the sort of idea that it's actually okay to use the same tools that were being used against them uh, now against, you know, their oppressor, essentially. Mm -hmm. And you don't see that as uh, the proper outcome? Well, I don't, no. I uh, I think when I've talked to people about this, they they view, <laughs> they don't like that I say this, first of all. And I and part of it is because they they think that I'm only saying it because now they're using it against you know, quote unquote us. Um, but I've said it, you know, when the left was doing it. And so I'm going to say it now um, to be consistent. And I think that some of them really feel strongly that that's the right thing to do. And what I hear them say is, well, we need this because it's so important. This is so important for us to get our country back, let's say. And it's okay for us to use the same tactics that were used against us because they're effective. Once we resolve these issues, then we'll go back to having, you know, principles. And I hear that quite a bit. I certainly don't hear that from everyone on the right, but I hear that enough that it is a movement. Hmm. And I think that for me, is it, it's not right for me because I, I am guided by principles much more than I am guided by any kind of ideology. So if my ideology are is principles, I guess. And for me, things like, you know, freedom of speech, suppression, sort of resisting the authoritarian impulses, whether they're on the right or the left, that's what's important to me. So I, when I see that, I don't think people are going to just become... I don't think people are going to get power and then just relinquish that power and, and then suddenly adhere to principles. Uh, that's not how it ever works out. So and then mm. now I'm seeing, well, people that I align with even less in some of my ideological beliefs, they're wanting power over me. Right. So I don't. Yeah. That, like in what that's way? Seem appealing. Um, well, OK, for example, I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was a trigonometry. And it was a woman who I've seen her before and I thought she was quite sensible, but I've never seen her, I guess, long form. And she is pro pro life. Uh, she has a pro life position. But here she was talking more about pornography. And what sort of bothered me in that conversation is that so I can understand some of her positions. She's quite good at articulating her positions. Um, she is a thoughtful person. But 
ultimately she wanted to ban things like pornography. And it's not because I'm like a big advocate of pornography or a consumer that I have a problem with that. But it's the fundamental idea that one can decide what is to the benefit of someone else. Because when we're talking about abortion, it's a bit of a different conversation because the pro-life position is that the, you know, uh, that you're protecting the child. And so it's a life. So I can understand that because you're not just like taking away somebody else's choice um, because you're actually protecting another person's choice. So I, so whether I agree with that is irrelevant. I understand the position. It's not so much of an authoritarian argument in that way, but, but in terms of this, it kind of is. So, I mean, she could make the argument that pornography is just overall bad for society. So by consuming it, you're also causing harm to society. So it's not like it's only affecting you. But that's a slippery slope because everything that I choose for myself ultimately can have some impact. So we can extend mm -hmm. that to, you know, a lot of conservatives believe that, you know, one should have women should stay at home and take care of kids. And we need more kids because it's actually better for our society. And especially in some countries, because you see decreases in population. So you need more kids. And it's one thing to sort of encourage people to have more kids and provide conditions when where they can make that choice and educate them on certain choices they can make. And the same thing with pornography, you can educate people and say, you know, this is the harms that come from this or you yeah. regulate it um, to ensure that you know, in terms of the victims of, of it. But but it's another thing to say, now you have to have kids. You're mandated to have kids, or you can't do this. Um, and that's where I, I think is the natural progression. So that's what scared me a little bit when I was listening to that podcast in particular, especially since she seemed like a very thoughtful, not an overly radical person. Mm -hmm. And what did she mean by banning pornography? Was that made clear? At Completely. All or so, yeah, at first it started with, you know, just uh, making it age, um, you know, putting it Gated, in age. Yeah. yeah, which is not a problem. Um, then, but then she ultimately it progressed to, um, I think her, her main position was that it just shouldn't, you shouldn't, you should make it completely illegal, uh, but not necessarily illegal to consume, but illegal to produce. Because in her, the way that she was making that argument was that the the problem was fundamentally with, um, you know, the abuse that happens in the porn industry, and that it should be illegal. But then she also, when she was asked about, you know, what about like let's say homemade porn, <laughs> should that be illegal? And she said yes as well. So now it becomes more of a reflection, I think, of values. Um, and then it progressed to words, the end of the interview, where she really just admitted that she wants it completely banned, like from every angle. So completely illegal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. People can go to prison, be fined. I don't know how she would define well, the penalty. Yeah, but... I don't I don't see that being practical. That's impractical. Uh, that's, that was the argument, I think, of the host. I don't think they thought it was practical either, actually. Um but what it showed me is that in her mind, in this person who seems, like I said, fairly sensible, logical person, calm, it seemed 
completely realistic. So it's not practical because it can't really happen. Um, but if she could make it happen, that's what she would do. So it's a, just a matter of power, not a matter of ethics or principles. But no, no, I mean, that's I, I don't know about that, because if she got all the power and she used it for her principles, that's still principle. I don't know how she get how she get that power to do that. Maybe that she'd have to be unprincipled in order to get that power. I don't know how she'd get that power. Well, I mean, I mean, she wouldn't be. I guess what I meant to say is that if she had the power, that's what she would do. Um, yeah. So it's just it's not deprive other people. What stops of her from the, doing that yeah. isn't this like. uh the idea that people should be free to make their own choices. The yeah. thing that stops her is, is the fact that she can't do it. She can't implement it, but it doesn't mean that's impossible to implement ever. Things change. The world changes. Hmm. So, yeah. which is why I care about, you know, even when it starts from this level of discourse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, is AI porn okay? Is drawing porn okay? If I took a pillow and draw two circles and a triangle on it and made love to it, would that count as a sex I mean, doll? I wish, I wish they'd ask her. I mean, I think she would see the negative uh, aspects of even AI porn because it's not just about the um, the uh, the victim in this situation, but yeah. also the um, the idea that that's where you're channeling your energy. So I think she would find that wrong, but also, um, and I wish I had the statistic to back up because it's something I heard from someone else and I haven't been able to verify yet myself. Mm. But what was told to me was that um, in some places where it was sort of banned or, or made uh, more illegal or, or more difficult to access, it actually increased the number of of crimes, um, like more sexual crimes. Yeah. So there is, there seems to be some evidence and I have to look at it further to, to really be able to say that with, with certainty, but there is some evidence that it actually, while it does cause some issues as well, it might also manifest itself, uh, in a positive way too, which is interesting if that's the case. And it also tells you that when you try to force things top down, you are putting yourself in, in a way in a position of a godlike character who can predict the outcomes of everything. Yeah. And that's not necessarily true. Yeah. There's a nasty uh, problem with trade-offs in this current reality. You take one thing away and it pops up over somewhere else. But the, there's also a challenge to what I think is your set of ideological beliefs called liberalism or being liberal that is uh, it's an absence of values anybody can do anything and then you see you know if nobody nobody can tell anybody what to do we see rising um well let's just it's probably easier to talk about let's say underage people's access to the internet and mm -hmm. we see a, coinc a coincidence with um teen girl or girls being given just widespread access to the internet and rising mental health conditions and then rising um, desire for medicalization of a gender issue or uh, the rise in transhumanism, uh, let's say, uh, via transgenderism. Uh, it's all coinciding, right? So that's an obvious problem that access to the internet is probably strongly correlated with mental health issues. And it 
could be the case that it's good for a generation to just shut off or tightly regulate their access to the internet. Mm. Um, is that something that you are able to support from your position of everybody should have the right to? You know, but you're talking about kids, which I find yeah. is a bit different. Because when I say talk, you know, when I'm saying, you know, everybody should have the right, um, it's adults that I'm talking about. Because I think with children, as a, as a responsible parent, right, you, you would have to, um, you know. So you would, you would advocate right for you. all parents should have the decision. Yes, I think parents should have the decision. Um, and I think every child is different, too. Some children, like I watched very adult movies when I was quite young. I don't think it did anything bad to me. I mean, I, by adults, I mean, not porn. <laughs> I'm just talking about like R-rated movies. And mm -hmm. I really don't think it, it, it like scarred me. But I think it's another child you know, might have a very different experience with that. I'm a little surprised now looking back that this was so unfiltered. I would say also something that was dumb and I was kind of lucky that I got away with it unscathed is that uh, my access to internet as a teenage girl and, and particularly this is the early days of the internet. So we didn't really understand a lot of these things. Like when you're chatting to strangers, there was no like education about it. And so I talked to adult people and uh, as a teenage girl, and looking back now, I realize that was, uh, you know, why were these adult men talking to me, right? I look at it differently now. Now, again, I'm lucky nothing really happened, but not everyone's lucky. And there's a lot of pro problems with this. So I think parenting involves like understanding what, what at what level of maturity your child is, figuring yeah. out what the right things are for that child, um, teaching them, giving them tools to understand the world better. And yeah, sometimes you want to restrict some, some access, sure. Uh, I mean, one thing that I hated that was, was I think, scarring, like all the porn pop-ups. I didn't need to see that. I don't want to see that. Um, and that, was a, like, that wasn't even something I was consenting to in any way, not that I was, you know, at that age consenting. And so, and, and my parents did monitor, you know, they didn't allow me unlimited time to use the computer and I hated it as a teenager. I really did because, and I would find ways to sneak more time in. Why did you want so much internet? What was so? I think it's addictive. I think there's an element that's addictive and you were out on the outside world, but at the same time, huh. And now I think it's even harder. I mean, back then, I will say before the internet, I was far more productive. Um, as a as a teenager, I was hyper focused. I wrote books and scripts as a teenager. I had I started a couple of companies, um, and I could just, you know, my attention was on. I just had this radioactive attention. I don't know how to call it, but it was just very, very, very intense. And then as I got older and spent more time with the internet, endless distractions, endless stimuli, it rewired my brain. Like I just, I don't have the same ability to focus. Um, and I think we, in general, we, we need time to just be bored and let our minds wander. But I'm always like, I need something constantly. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. And it's not healthy for kids and it's not healthy for adults. I met a couple, a, a couple when I was in London uh, on the train there that actually did forbid their child from using, having a phone. They didn't give her a phone. And and that at a certain age, I think at 16, that was the agreement is that 
you know, she can choose it for herself. So she was so excited at 16. Now she gets to go on the internet and go on social media. She spent like a week or so on it and she voluntarily gave the phone away. Really? <laughs> because she just, she felt the, how negative that experience was for her. And as much as it probably is difficult for her not to access the things that all these other teenagers are accessing, it probably helped her brain development quite a bit. So as a parent, I think you do get to make that choice for your child and you should. Um, now other people might disagree and find more value in, in the, you know, access to internet because you learn things, you, you explore things. There's maybe there are questions that you can't ask other people, but you get to ask the internet, you know, and it might actually save your life if you're too embarrassed to ask something, you know? So, so it's, so it's difficult to say, you know, one thing is completely bad and one thing is completely good. There's mm -hmm. cons and pros, but should parents decide? Yes. But when we're talking about liberalism, I'm talking about adults making decisions and adults make bad decisions too. I mean, we, there's not like this magic thing where you turn they 18. <laughs> well, some, some of us, not you, of course. <laughs> I don't make any decisions. Oh, okay. Shut those out. They get made yeah. for you. Okay. Yeah. No, but you don't turn 18 and you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I know everything now. I'm never going to make any mistakes, but we just have to decide on some number, whether that's 18 or 16 or 21 or 25. Um, that is, there, there's, you know, apparently the brain develops, continues developing as it until 24, 25. And then it stops mm. and you die. I don't know. Do you perceive a like a, what this group called the right want to achieve? Mm -hmm. Do you see what that is? And do you see them as a dangerous force? Or do you see the rightness as a dangerous force that's rising in the wings? I'll be honest. I am for, instead of lying to you, um, <laughs> you know, I'll... <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest for a change. Um, it's, I do see the threat. I didn't see it before. I was, I was more like enthusiastically talking to people on the right in the past. And there's still people that I'll enthusiastically talk to because, you know, we might not agree on everything, but I think they're coming from a good place. They have good morals. They're decent human beings. And that's really how I judge people. Um, and a lot of them are as concerned as I am, by the way about some of these things and they're seeing it too. So it's not just me like being a liberal and, and being freaked out by this. It's just what I see is more extreme. It's an extremist ideology that's rising. And I am, I I'm just upset as upset about it when it's on the left. It's just that I'm seeing it quite vividly on the right. Um, or in what way does it manifest? It's, I mean, right now I'm, because I'm not like, it's not the real world that I'm spending that much time in, yeah. um, with conservatives, it's, it's more online. So it's more in the conversations that I hear, um, on social media and, you know, spaces also on social media. Um, it's coming from a certain group on the right. Like one thing I realized that the right is a very wide, um, group net there's there's kind of old school conservatives that that have very similar views probably than i do, to mine on many things um then there is sort of the centrist 
right of center, center, yeah, right of center, um, which, you know, they, they, they're they a little bit more conservative on some things, but are quite open-minded and still respect personal freedoms. And even a little bit to the right of that is like that. Um, but it's, I think it's like the younger generation, if I had to say, it's the young right that sort of has this like very aggressive way of looking at the world and things. And they are the ones who are saying, yes, we're going to use the same tools. This is, we need to force people to do these things. It's, it's that authoritarian impulse that I'm seeing. And it's interesting hmm. that it's coming from more from younger people than I see it in, in older people. It kind of, uh, you think young men? Um, men and women, both. Really? Yeah. What's the difference between the men and the women that you see? In, in their aesthetic and what they want. Do you see much of a difference? Honestly, no, because the women sort of um, confirm what the men say. So I don't really see, because the women, for example, this idea of, of women should just, you know, make sandwiches and stay at home uh, and have kids and obey the men. It's not something that I'm just hearing from men. In fact, I hear that more from the women than I do from the men. Like, mm -hmm. I think the men are a little less inclined to say that out loud uh, in some cases, even if they think that, but the women are, it's almost, it's almost like one of their power plays. And it's not because I'm, I'm, by the way, it's not like I'm judging people for staying home with kids and having kids. You can be yeah. a stay at home mom. It's just this kind of idea that this is what women are meant for and w women who don't, fit that mold are somehow harmful to society, which is really the narrative that they're spreading. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. They're harmful to society. They are decadent. Um, it's, it's, it's this very negative uh, hmm. way of looking at people as opposed to looking at, okay, well, you know, we make different choices and, um, and some, some of us are meant for different things. And being a stay-at-home mom, I think, is is absolutely a, a legitimate pursuit but um, and can be a very good thing. But also, um, one thing that bothers me with that is that, for example, if women don't educate themselves and have no recourse, like sometimes marriages fail for various reasons. Um, and also, people die. Spouses die. So it might not even be, you know, you might have said, you know, till death do us apart and 100% both parties meant it. But somebody encounters death too early. And then what does the, the woman do? So, um, I mean, I don't know. Does that make me a hyper feminist? I don't think so. Hmm. You keep on bringing up this term education. Like that's gonna, that's, that's the principle. It seems that, uh, that, that, that seems to be your tool mm. or, or oh, your yeah. rubric to judge whether or not a group of people is on the right track. To what degree can they be educated about the dangers of this or educated in order to make informed decisions? It seems like education is the bedrock of, of your ideology. And I mean that just in a very, very soft term, not in the strong term. No, I understand what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I haven't looked at it that way, but I guess so. Um, because to me, rather than saying, Hey, you should behave this way, uh, or censoring something, for example, on social media, I've always sort of talked about how I'd rather provide more 
intel, more data, more information um, to people and, and improve their toolkit for being able to discern things. So whether, you know, media literacy, things like that, educating people on how to think for themselves better and how to figure out what the traps are. For example, you know, how do you determine what's an AI generated image versus a real one? What to look for? I'd rather people have the tools to figure things out for themselves rather than decide on their behalf, we're not going to show you this. So that's where I, I position myself or things like I bring up a lot, um, things like community notes. Um, so instead of saying, you can't say that because you're wrong, um, allowing sort of you know, it's maybe not perfect, but it's a it's a good tool because it doesn't even if you disagree with the outcome of the community note, it doesn't take away the original post. It just gives you more context, which you can decide that, hey, that's I don't agree with it for whatever hmm. reason, because you can look at the sourcing or or you say, you know, that actually makes sense. And I got this wrong. I am so glad I have more context now. So, yes, I believe in in that way. Um contextualizing things more, giving people more information, even things like, um, you know, like uh, abortions, right? Like I think one way, if you want to discourage people from having abortions is educating them more on, you know, safe sex, but also um, giving them life skills so that they choose, you know, make better choices for themselves. And also, um, giving them more options of what to do if they find themselves in that situation, which is not just education, but also um, addressing the root issue. So a tunnel out of Idaho. Yeah. Into like a, a tunnel out of Idaho could be a good solution for the, exactly. They, so they shuffle the baby out, but, but it is a way of, um, you know, I think you'd see a decrease if, if somebody is having an abortion because they just don't want to keep the child, right? Um, because it's going to ruin their life, whatever they, whatever reason they have for it. You can address that better. You can give them the option of, for example, giving that child up for adoption and make it easier for them to do so by setting up, you know, a certain environment to do so, giving them care for their medical care. And maybe there would even be a financial incentive of some sort. Um, I mean, you have to be careful with that because certainly you don't want to encourage people just to have kids in order to give them up for abortion, uh, adoption, mm. I mean. But, but, you know, I think allowing people like taking away the hindrances that prevent people from making better choices or what we might think or you might think is a better choice i think is a better way than like forcing someone to make that choice mm -hmm. that's essentially what i i think and and then i think education yes in terms of educating people so they can make better choices for themselves and that they when they look at information that doesn't add up that they can tell um, without me having to say, oh, this is wrong. You shouldn't think that or taking or censoring or taking away their ability to see somebody else's speech because, you know, hmm. I, I don't think one entity should be deciding what one should see or not. And I think it's interesting to me because those are, you know, liberal values, maybe abandoned a bit, but those are very liberal values that a lot of conservatives took on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. But so... There was this um, event that occurred a few years ago um, called like COVID-19 or SARS-V COVID-19. Oh, something really? Like that. Hmm. And there was this broad scale um, response to that that mm -hmm. uh, 
caused, you know, a lot of reshuffling of how people live their life and a lot of rules set on their behavior and then also mandating of uh, medical care across the board um, with very little wiggle room that. that was yeah. personalized. Um, I, it, I think it affected Canada uh, as well and maybe even so. particularly um, acutely yeah. compared yeah. to the United States. In times of emergency, all this great talk about education and having discussions and you know making making informed decisions tends to be thrown out the window and people come in and make decisions for you because you know we're going to die otherwise you know i guess that would be the ultimate excuse and stuff with regard to the response to the uh, upper respiratory virus or whatever it was named covid-19 how did the response to that and the way that people behaved around that inform or change your opinion on uh, on maybe on like your liberal assumptions or on how liberalism is weak or needs to be uh, strengthened? Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it actually taught me a lot of things. Um, so I think my position throughout the pandemic was a pretty liberal position, actually, um, which is interesting because it was more supported by conservatives. Uh, and that position was, you know, I, I did not believe in the mandates. Uh, I did not agree with that. Uh, I wanted people to have free choice. And, and it has nothing to do with how I feel about the vaccine itself. And I did a lot of research. It was unprecedented. There was no other um, such case. So, so there was a lot of... Um, I, what do you mean it was unprecedented? Uh, there in was never a mandate for any other vaccine. The, the, the ones that they brought up was um, like in schools, you, you have to get certain vaccinations in some in some states, some provinces. However, in those situations, you still have the option of, of not going to school, for example. Uh, you can just homeschool. So it's not and, and you never had a situation where you couldn't leave the country. So there's um, so this was a very exceptional situation um, legally. Mm. And, Do you know um, Schmidt at all? No. Uh, Carl Schmidt. He's a uh, uh, kind of kind of loosely associated with the Nazi Party for some reason or another, but he was a a legal philosopher in I'm Germany. I'm so glad and, I didn't say he's my best friend. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, no. I mean, yeah. He's he's got he's got some ties that uh, stain him, but um, he writes extensively about um, power and how whoever gets to make the exception is the one who has the power, the exception to your liberties. The one who gets to take away your rights is the one who has power. Yeah, um, and that that's what fair. was exercised, exercised by your um, very um, handsome um, communist asshole of a dictator up there called Trudeau. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what he did was quite... <sighs> Stunning to me. I mean, invoking the, uh, you know, freezing bank accounts, invoking uh, military powers uh, that just showed me how quickly power can be abused. Right. And turn authoritarian. I don't think I, I don't think anybody really expected that. Even people who don't like him. I don't I just don't think that was it's pretty stunning because I when I tell people about that in other countries um, and, and I'm talking about left leaning people they're all really stunned by it. It's it's not something that sits well with people. Um, and, and in Canada as well, like, I don't think most people thought that was okay. That was definitely a step way, 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 way too far. 
Um, and that's where I started seeing him as, as more of an active threat, as opposed to just somebody I, I didn't like some of the virtue signaling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, this was now to me an actively dangerous person uh, and an actively dangerous system because, you know, that system props up the person. But it was not liberal in any way. <laughs> it was hmm. illiberal. It was completely illiberal. And what I saw in, in the way that not just the restrictions and the restrictions themselves, and I mean, they didn't make much sense either in many cases, but also the fact that people weren't questioning things. And then the part where it's it was so quick to see how vilified people were, were not, you know, Taking the vaccine, whether you think they're dumb or whatever, doesn't really matter. Like the level of dehumanization that I saw was just absolutely terrifying. It was something that I spoke out against and, and which, you know, it's people attacked me for or called me a conspiracy theorist. You know, I didn't mm. I didn't talk about the vaccine itself because I just don't think that I have the um, the knowledge or uh it's not something that I took a stance on, but but in terms of mandates, in terms of passports, things like that, I think the fact that more people didn't speak out is very sad. Hmm. Well, maybe they did and you couldn't hear them. I mean, I had uh, my channel suspended just this year, uh, years after uh, the response to the uh, upper respiratory virus called COVID-19 or whatever it is, um, came out and I talked about that uh, treatment uh, in detail with the doctor. Like, what, how, what does it do? You're not supposed to even talk about what it does. You can't talk about that. I put out a podcast with a vaccine injured person more recently. And she has, I mean, this is not just somebody claiming that she's documented. And I thought, and the reason we kind of talked about both, she's a very sensible person, you know, very not one of those crazy people, which some of them are, I uh, have to admit. And then she didn't want to be used by sort of just, you know, run of the mill hmm. anti-vaxxers. Um, so we did a really great podcast episode. Uh, my parents liked it. Um, and it was um, and it was taken off of YouTube, yeah. um, which was it was interesting. I now I did. I did. Um, Why are we talking about this? <laughs> what? No, I hope this this episode doesn't get striked off of YouTube. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Well, I, yeah, I hope so too. But it was, I, I will say that I did challenge it and it got put back. So um, okay. I think it's like a, I think a lot of the censoring that's currently going on isn't even human. It's, I think it's most likely AI, but mm -hmm. it's, um, but some of it was, and obviously there's instructions and keywords that it's looking for, so so in in times like that, so when the whole thing about that virus and then the treatment of the virus comes out, there's this debate. Everybody in the discussion has twenty or thirty different studies, and nobody's a virologist, or maybe a few are, but then there's this consensus and the trust the science or science isn't something that you trust, and all that stuff goes on. Education doesn't seem to be the way through it, maybe. I mean, I have to be careful how I say that. I don't mean that exactly, but but the the process of debate, the process of argument, the process of deliberating over this thing doesn't seem to have any sort of end, any sort of boundary. It's just a bunch of people using research or using so-called science to enforce their position. 
back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's just it's so confusing. Um, well, part of it is the environment that was created because it's so adversarial. I don't think it's you get a lot of hmm. benefit if people are just like debate. I don't love debates. Like I think that, you know, when I was in high school, I thought it was fun um, and I had a trick for winning. But um, oh. but it's not um, I don't think it's so helpful when people are debating. And I watched I, I sat in on a lot of debates and, and I participated in some. I don't think A brings out the best in you. And I think it, it's like you, you only put forward the arguments that help you win, but you're not putting forward the things that might help you get closer to the truth of something. So it's immediately adversarial and you're protecting your position. And I don't think that's very helpful. And particularly when it comes to scientific discourse, it's really unhelpful. Mm. Ideally, you want an environment where scientists can disagree with each other. And you're right. Like, I think some random people picking up um, studies, this is why I don't have a particular point of view on some things, because I just, I haven't read all these studies, but also I'm not scientist yeah. i don't have that knowledge and i don't think anyone should frankly listen to me on some of these things but but there are people who are scientists and particularly when they are experts in a particular specialists in a particular subset of science that's relevant right because science there's so many types of science and people will study you know a little microorganism for for years and years of their lives and they don't necessarily know something about something else and then those same people might they trust the scientists that are specialists in this particular area to to, to tell them you know what what's what and so the problem is that when you have a scientific community where basically People can dissent because there is sort of a political aspect to it of, you know, whether I'm, I'm not talking political like Democrats, Republicans, I'm talking about political, you know, just stature and, and relationships and all that kind of stuff, certain consensuses. When you don't have absolute freedom to sort of research and, and talk about things and where when it is so adversarial and people are just defending their positions, you don't get to the you don't get to do the scientific process right so you don't get to the truth and yeah. i don't know how many things were wrong about you know in my book i write about um some of the chapters about climate science um climate change and and then um and also the pandemic and the people who were involved in these conversations are specialists right they're not some random person um now i don't think Brett Weinstein is one of the people in the book, and I don't, you know, he's a gen evolutionary biologist, so he's not like a, I don't see him as a pandemic specialist, but he does some have some scientific background, so I think he's <laughs> allowed to have opinions. But more so, I'm more concerned, I would say, about the people who are specialists being able to have absolutely free discourse and 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 the other side of freedom is that you know there's pharmaceutical companies or other entities that are funding research so mm -hmm. often some research won't ever get tackled because it has no funding and other mm -hmm. research is very much encouraged to come to a particular conclusion so whether intentionally or unintentionally some things might be omitted so i think the key is having a, a thorough scientific process where nobody's view is suppressed, particularly within the, you know, within the scientific community. It's so uh, the process of education or education as a process towards discovering the truth 
is premised on discourse that is not uh, impassioned. Competitive, competitive. So states of emergency or one way to shut down education is to provide a state of emergency uh, where, where it's, it's really, really important um, in one way or another that somebody's right or somebody's wrong. Well, that's why people Um, were willing to give up their rights so much, I think, because they were, including me, by the way. I mean, in the beginning, I was, I was pretty compliant with everything because I, look, I I was, I was as scared as everyone. And I thought, or as Mm. many people anyways, maybe not everyone was scared, but I was, um, it was a pretty serious strain. And, and the thing is, I did trust my uh, the institutions um, who to 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 do what's best for us. Really, I did, and so I did put that trust in. It's just that I started seeing so many inconsistencies that doubt started creeping in. But you're right; it's a an, an excellent time to shut down, you know, certain kinds of speech. In fact, you know, they would say by having these types of speeches, you're endangering people, right? <laughs> and even true speech, because you can see with um, Facebook, for example, and I'm sure Facebook was not the only entity, but um, there was pressure to take down true speech, right? So those were, it wasn't even things that they themselves considered, um, you know, disinformation or misinformation, neither of these two words, it was actually the truth but knowing certain things would then you know potentially endanger people because they might make the wrong decision that to me is the most scary thing when i found hmm. that out i was i was pretty stunned by that because yeah. i can see uh i don't agree with it but i can see why they might want to take down disinformation and misinformation the problem is they might get that wrong but to take down something that they know is true in this kind of authoritarian godlike status where they can predict and control people's behavior and essentially take away their free will. That just was pretty stunning to see. Hmm. So I don't know, I don't see it yet. Um, this danger from the right, but the people that uh, are in my wheelhouse uh, who and I'm basically de facto a liberal because that's how I behave or that's kind of the system that I tentatively trust and that's the system that I grew up in and by liberal I mean the free association of ideas and people and listening to things and and allowing you know just allowing broad ranges of behavior and speech um, and then kind of and then also aesthetically kind of being very wary of authoritarianism um, I, I, you know, those are the people and people in that, uh, in my association group that are in that or more liberal or more conservative or uh, maybe even a little leftist. I don't trust leftists uh, since the evergreen thing, but um, some of them are saying that there's something on the right that I should watch out for, that we should be wary of. Like there's this mounting um, anger and uh, authoritarianism. And um, I, I understand historically that the right has, well, I guess, uh, certain, uh, 
political movements that have been associated with the right have gone very far towards a sense of ethnic purity or social purity or uh, values-based uh, uh, enforcement um, and the stripping or the exchanging of uh, certain sorts of uh, freedom of behavior for uh, mandatory uh, alignment to a code of behavior. And I can see that I resist that. But at the same time, I also see that just pure lib libertinism or liberalism without teeth or liberalism. I don't even know if liberalism has any teeth. We just we were probably just in a place where we trusted each other enough. And we took certain things for granted. And those things have been shown over the course of the last five or seven years to not really exist in our institutions. So I can see the desire for some sort of conglomeration of people that want to enforce values that are um, good for society as opposed to deleterious for society. And I'm kind of in favor of a return to that, but I want it from the bottom up. I want it to be done, or I think that the only way that it would be done properly is that people opt into that. And I don't know how people in mass will opt into that without some of those people making some pretty strong claims about, you know, that, um, could be construed as aesthetically fascist, like, like kind of, uh, promoting a certain sort of moral standard, a certain sort of moral behavior and championing that. And you bring up, I guess, these trad wives or something like that saying, you know, those wine moms, those cat ladies, they're, they're, they're bad for the human race. They, they, uh, they, they suck men away from virtue um, and they suck resources away from, from us or they suck stature away from us. Um, and, and so we will vilify them, but it's, it's, there's a difference and a full circle. There's a difference between vilifying people's choices and then mandating those choices. Yeah. And vilifying is still a part of free speech, even though I'm kind of wary of it because it does tend towards authoritarianism, but it's the court of public opinion well, they and, like to call it shaming. So they, they even yeah. say, right, they use the term it's their shaming. Kink. They believe yeah. in shaming and they want to shame people for whether yeah. it's their sexuality or their choices, uh, you know, domestically. I, I very that I think that it that does align with authoritarianism. It's just what they just don't have the like do you think that if they had the power, which they don't, but if they had that power to mandate it, do you think they wouldn't? Um, well, if they did and they mandated certain behaviors, would it be better for society? Like there's going to be a trade-off. It's not going to be all bad to, let's say, ban porn, or it's not going to be all bad to uh, reinforce monogamy. Uh, it's not going to be all bad for the children. Um, but you're going to have a lot, I, and I can hear the feminist argument, you're going to have a lot of women who are going to be locked into relationships that are really bad for them. They're going to have a lot of uh, women who's um, not having access to independence is going to make them very dependent on very untrustworthy men. And, and that's the difference between certain ideologies, I think, is that one might value the end result um, a bit more where it's okay. Um, you might mm -hmm. have better monogamy will lead to these, for example, these better outcomes in, in these ways and this ways. But there's trade-offs. But like, so they value that that structure more than they value personal choice. And I guess I inherently value personal choice above the the success, I guess, of that structure. Yeah. And 
I guess but that's does kind of definitely a belief than it is a... Does personal choice scale well? Does personal choice scale Not well? always. Not always. And what kind of population can do best with personal choice? It's a, It would be an educated population. An educated population. And then how do you educate a population? I mean, improve. I think it's a combination of things, actually. I mean, if, if sincerely... Um, I think there there's a lot of criticisms about schools, which uh, I think there there's certainly a lot of issues with our education and, and many aspects. But but I also think it starts with the family structure and with families. I guess that's what you're getting at. But I say it's structure. It can be still a single parent. But, you know, obviously it's better yeah. when it's two parents. But yeah. um but having parents parenting where the parents are very involved and um and teach you certain values and value um, education and curiosity and encourage that, especially in your early development days. I think that's what sets people up for success because it's not like I wasn't being brainwashed in my high school days either. Like the, the teachers had all sorts of crazy beliefs and, and, but it didn't really affect me very much. I don't think I really listened to them that much um, beyond the subject matter. And I'd say that's because my parents instilled in me this critical thinking, a challenging views, just thinking for myself. And so I always had a skeptical, I guess, um, outlook and anything anybody said doesn't mean I disbelieved them immediately, but it wasn't, I also, nor did I take them at face value immediately. And so I think that really immaculated me against, um, some crazy ideas. I just, I just don't think I took anything like that from school. Mm -hmm. So what I see or what I hear is you advocating a certain sort of culture of uh, curiosity and uh, diligence with regard to um, not necessarily academic performance, but uh, skeptical, critical thinking, I guess, rather yeah. is uh, kind of the, uh, what you're wanting to foster. Is that kind of one of the seeds of your book? No apologies. Um, I mean, like what's the message? What's the, what, like, yeah. if you were allowed to actually state your, your value system or your virtue, your core virtue, your core ethic, the one that you would enforce if you had ultimate power. I mean, then the best one that I would, that is, is really the key for me is curiosity. Cause curiosity solves a lot of problems. Curiosity means that you're going to talk to other people. It means you're going to listen to other people because you want to hear, understand what they're actually thinking. That on its own would resolve a lot of issues. Curiosity also encourages you to learn and dig deeper into things. So I think curiosity is really the fundamental thing that I, if I had to force something in my, in th my authoritarian impulse, you know, if I can <laughs> just wave a wand and make everyone curious, I think that would do a lot of good. And I don't think it would do a lot of harm, actually. And maybe there is something mm. I haven't thought of, but I don't think it well, would. Uh, did you ever hear about the Bible? <laughs> yes, I heard of it. Yeah. In the very beginning, There's there many were two of them, people. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, whatever. Ma, 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 ma. <laughs> uh, the Talmud. What? No, not the Talmud. No, the Pentateuch. What's the other word for it? Jewish word for the first five? Uh, well, the Tanakh is one. The Torah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. the Torah. Yeah. Well, there was two people who were curious, mm -hmm. and that got them into a whole lot of trouble. 
Mm, oh yes, yes, yes. So, you're right. You're right. Curiosity can lead to trouble. That is true. <laughs> you're right. You found you found my problem area. So see, there's nothing perfect. They yeah. there's always some unpredictable or predictable consequences to choice, which is why mm -hmm. I believe in free choice. But mm. in my book, you know, uh, um, I think the main point of the book was more that when you don't allow when you don't use your own way voice to say what you mean you allow the the really loud radical voices to take over and dictate what our world is going to be like what our future is going to be like which mm -hmm. i do view as very dangerous because why would you want a world controlled by radicals yeah it's always the it's that bertrand russell quote i guess it's like the problem with the world being that those who are filled with doubt and thought are so quiet and those who are uh absent of curiosity are so loud and and take up all the air in the room so it's constantly a fight to rile up the soft-spoken it is it is but the soft spoke i was i don't know if you believe me now but i i'm one of the soft-spoken people <laughs> no you, you keep your tone well, I mean, you're not yeah, short-spoken, so but you're soft-spoken. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I speak very softly, but I also was a very shy person. I still am. I mean, it wasn't like I'm somebody who's very, and I'm not full of conviction. I'm I'm full of doubt. Like I'm constantly changing my mind and rethinking, and um, and I try to share that with people because I think it's important for people to understand that. I think there is a tendency to sort of follow those people who seem so convinced convinced mm. that they're correct and they have yeah. this self-conviction yeah. i understand that like it's very it seems like the the court of public opinion favors those with strong opinions that's 100%. why that's another problem that i have with the court of it does public because opinion. most people i don't think have um you know certainty so when they see somebody who seems like they really know what's up yeah. they tend to follow them and it's a, a good feeling to be it's right. It's a good feeling because then you don't have, yeah, and then you don't have to think about it so much for yourself. It gets rid of your own self-doubt, which is very uncomfortable to live with. And um, I think that's part of why people follow those people. But I, I don't trust people who are not able to admit, you know, change their minds on things or uh, say that they're wrong on something or be a little bit unsure. But unfortunately, like you said, in the court of public opinion, the people the people I like to listen to are are, are more doubtful, not so self-assured, but they're not the popular people. They're not mm. the popular kids at the table. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's very few revolutions of ambivalence. Correct. But I worry, but, yeah, and that's, and look, do we need revolutions sometimes? Yeah, I mean, to get to a certain places. <laughs> no, but I'm okay. Well, to get to certain places, right? You, you, there, there's sometimes no other choice, or it's going to take a very long time. But at the same time, revolutions are always going to be bloody and awful. And I mean, there are some things I really want to change about the the structures um, that exist. Name and, one. Uh, government structures, for example, and how the voting system works. But there's really no way to change that without a revolution is the conclusion I've come to. But hmm. I don't want a revolution hmm. because I want because I know what that's going to lead to. And so maybe we make do with what we have, but improve on that a bit. And, you know, um, 
work to make certain things better within it so we can have a better outcome and it won't yeah. and it will take much longer and it won't be as good as what i want but yeah i don't want but then people won't die you know yeah 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 but you'll have to be patient very and i'm not yeah. very patient no no. Well, you're patient enough to write a book or a few. Yeah, it was honestly, that's why I was like, I, I think my first line in the book is something like, I never wanted to write a book. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's true. I didn't. I didn't think I'd have the patience. And I definitely lost my patience quite a few times with it. But um, yeah. I'm surprised. I'm really happy that it, you know, I think I think there's no fulfillment that you feel strong, more strongly than when you do something that's really painful, that really is hard for you. You don't think you're going to get through it, but you push through it and you get it mm. out. Um, I think you feel because you've sort of kept a promise to yourself. Right? Hmm. Yeah. Where is it available and or yeah, when? It, it's, it's available now. No, it's available. So it's available as of January 30, which I don't know when people will be seeing this, but January 30, it's available in, and you can order it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble even has it in their physical stores, which is kind of cool. Oh, cool. And, yeah. Indigo, if you're in Canada and then, you know what, apparently even Walmart has it, which is, um, that was a little surprising, but, um, kind of, I don't know, kind of cool. Um, oh, wow. yeah, some, some pretty, I'm pretty excited about it, actually. And I, I just got my copies, my author copies today in the mail. So I saw it for the first time right before we started filming this. And um, it was kind of neat to hold it in my hand, I have to say. And it looks but it looks a bit better than <laughs> it looks different when it's in a physical form than it does on just like a PDF file. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I actually kind of like it. So wow. I put it behind me because I'm like, I'm see, this is the thing that authors do. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's lame. I don't care. Like you write a book and then don't put it behind you. I'm, I'm not judging you. I've, I've written my share. I just need to get them published at some point. But, uh, you know, right, now you, you get to go on podcasts and somebody can come along and do a compilation of you saying my book, my book, my book, my book, my book. My book. <laughs> I don't say quite as much as maybe... Um, uh, I, one might think, but, uh, I've been working on that because naturally I'm like very non-self-promotional and, yeah. um, you kind of have to, where people don't know about any of your books. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I've been having to like, you know, get over some stuff, <laughs> but I, I, I now have had people read it. So when I was, I'll be honest, when I was, you know, going through the drafts and copy editing and going back and forth with my publisher, I think I sent him an email saying, you know, I actually like this book. It's quite good. I've now read it in multiple times and it's actually pretty good. And he's like, yes, but that's not going to save you from, you know, getting whacked over the head. And that's not the word <laughs> to use, but whacked over the word head by haters who just don't like the topic. I'm like, okay, fair mm. enough. At least, at least maybe they'll read it. That's, that's good. That's a start. But now I've had people just read it, um, who, you know, got some early copies and, and they had really good responses. So I'm like, ah, oh, so it's not just me. I'm not delusional. Hmm. At least some people like it, but I don't know when the bad reviews are, you know, if hopefully there won't be any, but if a bad no, review, no, 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 you want them, I'm sure there you will, want, but... you want haters. That means that your ideas are scaling. If yes. you don't, if there's nobody pissed off at you. It's like you're the tree fallen in the forest. 
You know, for me, I wrote this book because I wanted to reach people who don't already think exactly the same stuff. Like I wrote it also in a way where I was hoping to do that. So it wasn't meant to go. Of course, there's going to be people who are going to read it, who are going to already agree with me on all of this stuff. And that's probably the easiest demographic to sell a book to. Um, I want to reach the people who... I'm less sure would pick this book up and some encouragement in that area is that when I've shared, I shared some blurbs from the book with some people on the side that I wouldn't expect to embrace it as much. Actually, people were really curious about it and ordered it. Um, so, you know, I think, which by the way, you can pre-order the book if you watch this before it comes out. Um, see, I did the, oh, the, the writer thing. Good job, um, good job. <laughs> but it's something that, um, that was a very pleasant surprise. Cause I will say this to you. When I first sure, shared this book, I, you know, I shared it with people on, you know, who follow me on X. People who follow me on X and other platforms already know where I stand with this stuff. So I wasn't expecting to be attacked by them or anything like that. But where I hesitated is sharing it on my personal Facebook, which mm. I haven't been using very much, but that's all my liberal friends, left-leaning liberal. I don't have any concerns. Yeah, that's the only there. people who use that godforsaken probably, app anymore. Probably. But, it's, um, but I was hesitating about sharing it there and I almost didn't. And then I thought to myself, I wrote a book about using your own voice and not, and you know, not having so much fear about doing that or getting, actually it's okay to have fear, but you need to get over the fear is, is kind of the point. So who am I <laughs> if I can't do that? Um, so I shared it and to my surprise, cause I, I, I really wasn't sure what the reaction would be, but to my surprise, it was extremely supportive. And like I said, people mm -hmm. ordered the book and were very encouraging. And now I've started sharing some uh, blurbs even on like LinkedIn and people seem pretty excited about it. And um, so I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. That sometimes you'll be surprised. Sometimes uh, when you, when you, when you say what you mean, and it might feel a little dangerous. Sometimes you'll be pleasantly surprised. You know, people mm. will surprise you. Maybe they agree with you or maybe they just support you. Like with my friends, I can say anything with my close friends, right? And I know with, I have absolute comfort and certainty that they're not going to judge me because they understand who I am as a human being and where things are coming from. They can disagree with me. They can debate me. It doesn't matter. I want them to, if they disagree, but they know who I am as a human being and they know I'm not some racist, raging racist, sexist, or whatever you want to call it. They know my intentions are always coming from a pure place. And that's like, that's a true friendship. I think when you always assume the best of your friend and, but you can be open with each other and you can also be critical with each other. And so it's, um, so you find out who, who is a real friend when you speak sincerely and authentically. And that's what I found. And certainly mm -hmm. there's some people who've distanced more, right? Um, none of my close friends have though. And it's something that also, um, yeah, I think it you'll be both surprised in good ways and bad ways. You know, people you might expect to understand might not and might turn away and you might lose friends. That can happen. That has happened to a lot of people. Um, 
but you might also find that your existing friendships grow to be much better, much stronger, much more authentic and much more real, sincere. Mm -hmm. You know, earlier in the conversation, I let this question pass me by. Um, but now that we're at the end, I, I feel mm -hmm. like it's time before I let you go to ask, why were you in London? You just like, you, oh. you nonchalantly, when I was in London, and you start to tell your London stories. I mean, I get around, uh, but actually... <laughs> oh, do you? <laughs> I do, but I was actually living in um, Hungary at the time. So I spent three months in Hungary doing a fellowship. And um, then I, from there, it's much easier to get to London. So I, I went to do a podcast in London and also just visit some friends. Oh, really? Yeah. They, they just have podcasters in London that are just like throwing their net to any American expat, or sorry, Canadian expats. And there, there's one in particular that um, is a good one that I like very much. Oh. <laughs> okay. You're not going to name drop? I can name drop. I, I don't think it's like secret. It's trigonometry. Oh, cool. Yeah. They're great guys. Thank yeah, goodness. I really like their because they invite such a diverse range of people, and they're mm -hmm. they're good at sort of, you know, with some of their guests that they're, they're they're good at following up. I mean, I I, I like that about you too because you don't you don't just like you're not agreeable um, in the sense that like if you disagree with something or you're trying to clarify a thought, you'll you'll ask me, you'll follow up on it, right? So. Mm. I think that makes it a more interesting experience, both for the person who's the guest, but also uh, for the audience. And so I appreciate when I watch their podcasts that they do that um, in a way that's not confrontational or they're not like debating the guest, but they are sometimes clarifying the points of view or pushing back a little bit, right? But in a way that I think makes you understand the positions better. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I enjoy. And, and I think a lot of people in this discourse have become a little bit more radicalized and more feeding like their existing audience. And I think those guys are good at sort of um, maintaining a curiosity mm. and also bringing, you know, not necessarily always playing to the crowd which I think yeah. is really important because you can't be an independent thinker if you're just, you know, playing to your audience or otherwise known as audience capture, which I th yeah. saw happen to a lot of people. I know that it hasn't happened to me. And I only say this with confidence because my audience constantly disagrees with me. Oh, so, <laughs> yes. That's a great thing to have cultivated. Yeah, I think I think they feel free to disagree. Now I have since the events of October 7th, it's gotten a, a little bit feisty out there. Um, mm -hmm. So I have some rules of, of engagement. And, you know, I used to be I used to engage with anybody, no matter how they came at me um, if, until maybe a few years ago. Now I sort of look, OK, if you come with you're not personally attacking me, you're coming with an idea feel free to disagree. If you're now engaging in personal attacks and lies and just that kind of stuff, that's a little bit different. I don't engage with that. And I don't, you know, I don't believe in doing that anymore. Um, but anybody can express their point of view as long as they've, you know, um, given it some thought and it's coming in good faith. That's just what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. um, 
And some people, I'll engage with people when I um, when I feel like they've made a really strong counterpoint. And I think it's not that uncommon for me to say, you know, you're right about this. That's interesting. Let me think about this a little bit more. I didn't know that. Um, so I think that's how I actively stay away from being captured. Because it's very, you know, I know that if I tweet something or say something, I know certain things will go viral and they'll be really popular. And, and certain people in my audience will love it. Um, but I really try hard to to stay away from that and very intentional about it. Hmm. So the book's over. What's coming up next? I guess you have to go on these tours, right? Um, I don't know if I get to do a tour, but that would be interesting. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, the book is 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 the thing that I've been really focused on, and just doing some writing. Um, you know, I have my podcast, but I've sort of put it on pause, especially when I was in Hungary, like doing podcasts in Hungary was not, I, I recorded a couple, but it was very difficult. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm actually hoping to do another book after this. So I already have mm. like a proposal for one. Um, so I'm hoping I get to write another book. So that's my hope. If not, I guess I'll just continue sort of, it's very difficult for me to think about going back to non-independent writing at this point. Cause it's just my outlook on things has changed so much and what I want to write about has changed so much. And I want to have utter freedom to express myself, but, and you can't have that within any kind of structure, but I don't know. I, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit lost right now. I'll be honest. Mm. Um, I just hope that I get more opportunities to connect with people and write and learn and, um, I'd be very happy if I get to do all of that. Hmm. Well, you have the, uh, you have the chops and, uh, the yeah. hunger, you have the, the drive. Um, so I hope you get a lazy person. Th yeah. Oh, really? You're lazy. <laughs> You're I'm, always I'm, doing I'm things. I know. I know. It's super weird because I am, I am a lazy person, which means I find shortcuts, but, um, I don't, I'm both, I'm a contradiction. Like I'm both truly, I am lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I am doing things all the time because I'm also like very um, motivated by creating new things. So I'm, mm. I've always had that temperament where I'm like, oh, I have this idea. Okay, let's go in and do it. And I don't think too much about it. I just kind of do it, which yeah. means I often abandon many of these ideas once they get to a point of like, oh, it's a lot of hard work and I'm yeah. not so in love with this idea anymore. But um, but yeah, there's there's like a level of laziness as well. So there's hope for lazy people. As, as there is hope for lazy. Yeah. Yeah. At least you're like, you're not a radical. I mean. <laughs> At least I'm not a radical. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Anybody can become one, by the way. I think oh, it's really? Okay. Remember. So stay, yeah, stay vigilant. Vigilant? Vigilant. Vigilant. Vigilante? Yeah. No, stay vigilant. Oh, vigilant. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the most important lesson is like anybody can become anything if if you don't adhere to certain things if you don't stop and think about things and you don't check yourself because i've seen so many people get more extreme you know i hope i have and some people i i know think i have actually so mm. um and it's have told me so <laughs> yeah 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 well Catherine, thank you very much for reaching out it's great to 
hang out with you again, have a conversation Likewise. again. Thank your you. book, No Apologies, is at every Walmart, apparently. So every just Walmart. Go to your, go uh, to easier local... to get on Amazon and Bars and Noble, but okay. yeah. Yeah, also it'll, it'll come to your doorstep, but uh, there, it's not offered on DoorDash. Is there a DoorDash for books? I guess that would just be Amazon. There right? should be. What a great idea. I would do it if I wasn't so lazy. <laughs> would ride your bike around throwing books at people? Yeah, just go around book club where you just get a random book, like maybe a secondhand book. I like those and and just like throw them at people through the window. Maybe that's not such a good idea. I don't, I don't know. know. It sounds <laughs> radical. Sounds cool. Sometimes being radical is not so bad. It just depends. Yeah. 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 See, you're always waffling. You're like, you can see the, the I different am. I'm a sides, waffler. Somebody right? did an impression of me yesterday. Oh, and, no. And it was a waffling impression. Oh, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always trying to like, well, on the other hand, this, but this, and really both are not so bad, but those are bad. So I know I do this, but it's also true to what I think. So. <laughs> hmm. Well, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much up. for having me. Always great to have a conversation with you. Absolutely. And...